Hello, I'm Jake, and this is Paige. Hello, everyone. You're traveling the world through books. Today, we arrived in Moscow, Russia. We were on our way to the bookstore when we got targeted by stray dogs and cats. We rushed through the alleys of Moscow to the bookstore and discovered our events are similar to the wild events of our novel today. To know why, subscribe, rate, comment, and keep listening. You're listening to Paperbacker Podcast. Hurry. Ow! This isn't a shortcut page. Where's this bookstore? Do you see it? No, but pick a direction fast. Hey, you! This way! What do you think? Should we follow him? He had a book in his hands. So? What's your point? The author Lemony Snicket once said, Never trust anyone who has not brought a book with them. But he could be a book thief. And he said, well-read people are less likely to be evil. Trust authors. Go, hurry. Shoot, where'd he go? Oh, there he is. Excuse me. Hi, just wanted to say thanks for showing us the way to the bookstore. We were actually pretty lost and uh, there was this cat chasing us because of my book here. We trusted you because we saw that you also were reading a book. What is the book you're reading anyhow? Uh, Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. Do you mind if I take a look really quick? All right, so let's see. One hot spring, the devil arrives in Moscow as a professor of black magic. From the moment he arrives, a raise of devilish, hilariously mischievous, inexplicable phenomenons occur. These include magic shows, hundreds of people running around Moscow in their underwear, talking cats, involuntary public sing-alongs, stories of Pontius Pilate, naked witches, and more. But it's also half-love story too, with our character Margarita attending a ball with the devil in hopes of being reunited with her true love named master. This book is a masterpiece of satire, wit, and deep provoking thought. A book no reader should ever pass up. Well, I'm very excited to learn more about this. First, I want you to meet my brother too. He'll tell you much more about this story, much better than me. Uh, his name is Igor. Jake, this is my brother Igor. Hi, Jake. Welcome to Russia. Hi, glad to be here. And so you are... Roman, yeah. So we are we are brothers. Of course, I'm I'm the older one, which makes me, you know, smarter and more handsome uh, of the two. <laughs> now, are you two from Moscow originally? Yeah, we're like ethnic Koreans. We like which means like our ancestors, grand grand grandparents, they came from Korea, but they immigrated to Russia, and then later they were immigrated to Uzbekistan. So our parents were born in Uzbekistan. When Uzbekistan was a bunch of Central Asian countries, they were part of Soviet Union at some point. So, you know, it had a huge influence on, you know, different aspects, but definitely education as well. So we were, when we were like taught in schools, it was all like in Russian. And then Russian literature was the part of the curriculum as well. Yeah. So it was uh, at some point, probably high school, we had to like read the spoken class. It was just like a literature class. I mean, but that was not my first kind of encounter with the book. We actually had this book lying around at our home and it was just... Just like something our mom or dad liked to read. It was one of the favorite books, but it was just lying around the house. So I just picked it up one day and just start start reading. And for me, I never read it in school as well. Like I just skipped it. And I think I read it first a couple of years ago. 
Oh, okay. Any reason why? I don't know. Like, I was not a good student. <laughs> I didn't like the idea that I was forced to read the book. Like, when when you're young, like when you're at school and this kind of literature, basically you're forced to read it, right? And maybe you have your own opinion, but they will tell you what this book about. They will tell you how you should receive it, how you should understand it. You know, now that I think about it, weirdly enough, I didn't read any Russian literature in my English classes. We read Ernest Hemingway. We read the book A Brave New World. We even read our freshman year, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Oh my God. I remember no one understanding at all what the heck the teacher was talking about half the time. That was a big mistake on her part, if you ask me. But I think my dad told me he read Crime and Punishment when he was in school. And again, it kind of went over his head maybe too. It's one of those books adults get more out of than maybe teenagers. But it's probably better than reading books like Twilight or something, right? <laughs> but I enjoyed reading the books in English class. I just didn't really like doing all the work that he wanted in that class. My favorite books that we read definitely I think that stand out would be Animal Farm and The Old Man and the Sea. I think those are really easy to read books. And then Lord of the Flies was a pretty good one, but I don't remember when I read that. I don't know if that was in high school or in middle school or whatever. And then some other good ones that I remember reading in school, but this is more middle school, was The Hatchet and then The Giver. I believe I found The Hatchet in the school library, though. And I, I still remember that one. And when he crashes the plane, he crawls out of the lake and he sits next to a tree. And then in the book, they describe him just getting sucked by mosquitoes. I remember that feeling being really vivid for me. Like, how could you just sit there and let mosquitoes mosquitoes suck the blood, you know? So Mikhail Bulgakov seems to be the opposite of this, sort of a rebel writer. It says here that the devil in this story is actually Stalin. Wow, that's brave. What can you tell me about this Bulgakov guy? This is actually the main, one of the main premises of this book, how the government controlled what you write. You cannot write about any everything. Do you think people feel that same sort of pressure? nowadays not as strict as before but still like no big ideas right you gotta tiptoe still a little bit yeah 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 i, I guess like don't just you know do do as much as you can to like not be on the on the radar of the big guys right in the in the office all those top level guys just be under their radar and then otherwise you can i guess there is a, you know freedom of speech but just don't get you know don't get too famous you know what i mean don't get to the point where you have your own influence on, on people you know what i mean yeah 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 that, that is might get a little bit dangerous you know for you that's sort of counter to what a writer tries to do though right yeah yeah exactly just sort of yeah it's kind of like hey be a writer but don't be a real writer yeah but write only what we totally tell but that, you. that's why he's uh that this book was published like years after his death right he's he couldn't publish it right the story is that he started working on it like it took him like about 20 or 30 years to write it and still when he died it was not finished completely yeah like i think even like he burned his first like manuscript of the book he burned it because he was so frustrated as a writer so he just like okay f it right he just burned it but then he kind of like okay i guess he decided not to give up on it and and he restarted the whole process again and that's a day that's a day without like saving your documents on computers you know? yeah like where your manuscript <laughs> was literally your only it was your only writing but then he incorporated it into the story right you know how the, the master right he burns his uh yeah, spoilers <laughs> yeah spoilers yeah so before spoilers then this is a good time to get into the first part of the book book one chapters one through six here we go two characters stroll through a park in maine one around 40 years old named Mikhail 
Alexandrovich Berlotz, and the other, Ivan Nikolaevich Poniev, or known by his pen name as Homeless. Both of these characters are members of a huge literary association abbreviated as Mazolit, M-A-S-O-L-I-T. The weather is hot and terrible. So they go for a drink at a stall named Beer and Soft Drinks. They ask for Narzan, which offends the woman taking the order because they don't have it. Furthermore, they can't get a beer either. So they settle on an apricot soda with abundant yellow foam and causing them hiccups. The two of them discuss Jesus Christ because of a recent poem, Homeless Road. Berlot's lectures homeless that Jesus never even existed. And then suddenly, a stranger wearing a gray beret and, despite the hot weather, wore gloves and also had with him a cane, though he walked without a limp. His eyes were unique too. The right eye was black and as cold and dark as death, and the left was green and utterly insane. The foreigner introduces himself, and eventually we learn that he is a professor of black magic. His name is Wolin, and while we don't know it yet, this is the devil. The strange professor is hilariously delighted that the two writers' conversation is about the idea that many people in the area accept that Jesus never existed, and he loves that, although he has a problem with it fundamentally because, in fact, Jesus did exist. He would know, the stranger says. He was there. Why would asking for a drink offend somebody? What is this Narzan drink? Yeah, it's like it's so like sparkling water, like was famous at that time because of uh, natural healing properties, like gathered in the mountains, whatever. You know, the taste of soda can be a funny thing around the world. Sometimes there's there's drinks like root beer. A lot of people don't seem to like it. Cream soda. In the book, they drink apricot soda. <laughs> and, you know, that's not that bad, but it just sounds... I like the way he describes it as apricot soda with abundant yellow foam. I just kind of like that, <laughs> but I don't know if I would ever order it. <laughs> Especially in a hot summer when it's not cold, right? She said, but it's not cold. Yeah, I would not drink it, too. <laughs> it would make you more thirsty. <laughs> Igor, what was that thing? What was it called? Morse? M-O-R-S. Yeah, Morse. Yeah, I think American is like kind of root beer. It was made from bread, I think. I've never tried like, you know, Coke, like Pepsi. I tried it, I think, when I was in school. You never tried Coke or Pepsi? Yeah, because like, you know, the Soviet, you know, the Soviet Russia, there was a, I think there was a ban on like, you know, especially like the West, right? The American foods and products, right? And yeah, we didn't really have this access to, like, it was mostly like Europe, like Europe, there was no problem. When was, when they lifted the United States? It was 1991, right? So yeah, I think before that, there was no like we didn't know what, what coke was right mcdonald's we still don't have mcdonald's in uzbekistan up until this day yeah. no i think there is caves you know <laughs> slowly but surely you'll get them all another thing is that this author is really good at descriptive writing at that time like not at that time most of the like russian famous like writers they use this what is the term to describe like nature to describe like houses to describe streets in really really in detail like this is kind of russian style of writing and sometimes really boring when you like kind of follow the story and then they suddenly start to describe like mountains and trees and like what color was the mountain what color was the trees the leaves so in so like detail that you start to forget about the story and this is kind of always always when i read the russian like literature i annoyed by that when i see the like, huge paragraph and i know that they're gonna try to describe unnecessary stuff i just kept it and but like in this book he was almost like kind of didn't do that but in the description of this house he kind of uh, started to use this super detailed description technique and i didn't like that but for me that's what makes it feel like i'm in moscow and as a outsider i think that's the best part
the conversation between the devil and Homeless and Berlotz is really, really funny. Now, Homeless suggests that the professor is a German and then that the professor also doesn't deny that. Now, is this a dig at the Germans for the World Wars or something? Yeah, it's just that era. It was a pre-World World War Two. They were kind of good buddies with Germans. Still, there was tension. I'm not sure, guys. I'm not a historian, right? It's, this is just my take. So uh, pre-World War Two, so there had been some tensions already with between Germany and probably like Russia. So maybe they, they saw him and he definitely looked and dressed as a foreigner and they kind of assume, oh, maybe like uh, he could be like a German spy. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering because it wasn't World War II yet, but it was, I mean, after World War One, German kind of lost a lot, at least as far as I know. And so I thought maybe there was, you know, before World War II, obviously Germany was changing. So during that change, I wasn't sure if maybe, yeah, something was going on with Germany. Yeah, I, I, this is like nothing like polit political in this. I think it was just yeah, because it was like 1930s. It was like 15 years before the 10 or like something years before the war. Even there was no Hitler at that time. So because at, at some point they said like I think he's German and someone like thought oh, probably he's English. So it's like they were just Why, guessing. Didn't like, you say like 20 minutes ago you were a bad student and you sucked at you know? at school but now it seems like you know a bunch a whole bunch of history yeah, it, it, it doesn't mean that i'm <laughs> stupid <laughs> i don't like study but i'm smart <laughs> igor is really good at making stuff up on the spot i think that's how he got through school yeah. let's dive back into the story so Woland says that he was there during the time of Jesus and berlots and homeless are very confused by this because well that's impossible right the stranger Woland tells them the story of how he was there with Pontius Pilate on the day he passed judgment over Yeshua, or Jesus. The last sentence becomes the first of our next chapter as we whisk away into the past of biblical times. We meet Pontius Pilate with a terrible headache while he is brought a prisoner for final judgment. This prisoner is none other than Yeshua, or in other words, Jesus. At first, the conversation is about whether or not Yeshua ordered his followers to burn the temple. Yeshua says the fault is not his, but of those who listen to him, misunderstanding the true words of what he says. Pilate at one point agrees, and it kind of says, Yeshua, you're innocent, I think so too. But the conversation shifts as Yeshua claims more things, like all men are good. But then Pilate learns Yeshua had also spoken ill of Caesar. This report was given to him by Yedua of Kerioth, Judas. What was it that Yeshua had said? Quote, Every form of authority means coercion over men, and that a time will come when there shall be neither Caesars nor any other rulers. Man will come into the kingdom of truth and justice, where there will be no need for authority. Unquote. It's enough to condemn him. And as per tradition of Passover, when announcing the sentence before a large crowd under the blistering hot sun, Pontius Pilate gives the people one final vote to release, one of the condemned. The votes are for Bar-Rabban, an actual murderer and we return back to Moscow. I like the transition from chapter one to chapter two. He puts us in the story of Pontius Pilate and Yeshua. You know, he calls it Yeshua and not uh, Jesus, which is, which is what some of us would call it. That's like the Hebrew name or the um, Jewish name. So, and the whole conversation is really cool. It's a really deep conversation. You know, he says, all men are good, even the Mark the Rat Killer guy. Pontius Pilate thinks that's, you know, nonsense, crazy talk. But I think it kind of like uh, underscore, underscore the whole theme of this novel, right? In terms of like good versus evil. Yeshua, right? Which is uh, Jesus Christ. Obviously, he is going to see only good in people. And then his words, not just this, not just him saying like, you know, oh, I see good in people. But just through his words and, and his actions, 
he influences people to do to be good. And like you can see this this change in Pontius Pilate at the end, right? When he like regrets his decisions and stuff like that. And then this is opposed by like Wolin. When he's like and his crew go around mess with people, they they sort of have this influence, sort of a this indirect influence of people kind of like bring out the the true colors, right? And those true colors are obviously evil and bad. So they made they they push po- uh, people to the point where they kind of like have no choice but to do evil things to kind of survive. Whereas uh Yeshua he's like all people are good no matter yeah, you're doing bad things because you someone pushed you to do this. Yeah, people would resort to like the worst to, to survive, right? To make sure they're good. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Even like the worst people, I can see good in you guys. So there's always, you know, uh, the choice that you can make that could like, you know, turn things around, you know, both for you and for people around you. Only a cer- because of those cir- circumstances, you're doing some bad stuff. I also would say, do you think that this is a, a suck up to Stalin, you know, and say like, Hey, Stalin, you know, I know you're doing some bad stuff, but hey, you're a good guy. But it's kind of a hard thing to admit is true that all men are good. Too bad he wasn't saying this after World War II, because I think he might rethink that one. <laughs> but like, you know, if you're a son of God, obviously your your job is to, to view humanity as good. Like, you know, as you grow up and you get influenced by the world, people around you, yeah, this changes who you are. But the starting point, like when you were born, you're this baby, innocent baby, you know, there is no bad in you, you're good. So it's kind of like this this movie, like, what was the movie? I think it was Deadpool, right? When he kind of like travels back in time, and he's like, okay, he finds baby Hitler, right, in the hospital. Like, he wants to like choke him out, and he like, he just couldn't do it, because he knows that he's going to grow up to be this bad guy, but like, he still couldn't do it, right? Yeah, there's the theme of this book. Everything should be balanced. Like, I mean, like, can you imagine, like, you read the Bible? Probably he read the Bible several times. And then basing his knowledge and, like, but mostly on the Bible, he wrote this script, this book. How would have the conversation between the Pontius Pilatus and, like, the Yeshua will be actually, you know, what they would talk about? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like kind of crazy Pilates? stuff. I don't know what's his name. He, he... he just said Pontius Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> like in or is is in, in name in Russian he's like Pontius like Pilates. Whatever. I don't know. Oh, maybe I have it wrong then. I just because yeah, when you say Pilates, I think of like the exercise Pilates. So this is all about his moral dilemma of doing what is right versus his duty. And our author, Bulgakov, and many other Russians of that time have personal experience with it. He knows he should let Yeshua go free, but can't. Do you think, as Yeshua says, all men are good? Now, we all are capable of committing the worst atrocities. Think of the worst person you know of. Most aren't born that way. They grew into it, slowly, over time. Inch by inch, so slow you can't even see the change sometimes. Or, like we learned, when you have no other choice but to do the bad thing, which is what Woland and his gang seem to do. So how is one person better or worse than me? That is what is meant by being equal. If we are all capable of being the worst, then we are also then capable of being the best. Without the bad, there can be no good. Without the devil, there can be no God or Jesus. How would you even know what that looked like without knowing what it doesn't look like? So, what would you do? Would you let Jesus go? Would you defy the crowd, sacrifice your job and possibly life to free a man who is at least guilty of slandering the ruler, even if he was tricked. Do you think of Pilate as a coward? Difficult questions, difficult answers. Back in Moscow, Ivan is looking at Woland and telling him that this story of Pilate is unprovable and ridiculous, and that the devil isn't real. And Woland laughs at that, quote, It seems, no matter what you name here, 
it doesn't exist, unquote. It has become too much for Berlotz. This story and Woland, his plan is to run to a nearby phone and call the police on this stranger. Suddenly, as Berlotz goes to cross the street, the streetcar comes. Berlotz loses his balance, slipping on the oily cobblestone and falls onto the rails. The streetcar's brakes couldn't stop in time. The streetcar severs Berlotz's head off, just as the Professor Woland had predicted. This event scares Homeless tremendously. The prediction proves that Woland might be who he says he is. Homeless tries to catch Woland, but he gets away. Instead, Homeless is running around frantically through the alleys of Moscow, making a spectacle of himself in his underwear, warning everyone of this stranger from a distant land who saw Pontius Pilate and who predicted his friend Berlot's death. Naturally, people take him as a madman, and he is arrested in front of the Masolite headquarters house and dropped off at a mental hospital, where he's assumed to have schizophrenia. One of his literary buddies named Ryukin accompanies Homeless to the hospital, only to get insulted by Homeless as a terrible poet. Afterwards, outside the hospital, Ryukin is gloomy and angry and looking at a statue of Pushkin, comparing himself to the dead man. Later, he drowns his sorrows in vodka and passes out. You know, he talks about drinking vodka a lot. I always think of vodka. I mean, when people think of vodka, I think Russia always kind of pops up in their mind. It's kind of iconic, I think. Yeah, it's almost, I think it's kind of stereotypical too. People, when people think of like Russians drinking, they think of them drinking vodka. It's not a stereotypical, like it is stereotypical, but it actually is. The, like the people in Russia, they, it's a problem. People do drink a lot, but in Russia, in some regions, it's like over the top. When, when someone says like vodka, like immediately it's like Russia. It's not because of someone tells you, it's because of actually it's like. What would be, uh, what's like the most popular brand of vodka? If you would, if you go to a bar, what vodka should I order? I guess like if you're outside, then it's going to be like not Russian vodka. It's like absolute or whatever. They, they said that, like, I, I remember they made the vodka called Putin. Putinka. It's like the, his face on the bottle. Yeah. That's, that's not bad. <laughs> it's not a statue. It's a vodka. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. more, <laughs> more honor goes to it. Like to see the statue, you have to be near the statue. If you want to see like vodka, you just like made with real Putin tears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tears <laughs> for his country. Sweats, yeah. <laughs> Sweats. Like, anyways, like it was kind of popular at that time when it first came out, and the people told me like the quality was good. But I guess the most iconic is Stalichne. I wouldn't do well in Russia. I'm not really a vodka fan. Maybe after after first shot you will be. Yeah. <laughs> they will force they will force you. You would think uh whiskey would be more popular cuz Russia can get so cold in some places. Like where is whiskey popular? You know, states, Ireland. Ireland, yeah. So, but the thing is when you when you like drink whiskey, right? Normally, you like you sip it. But like with vodka, you never sip vodka in Russia. You you never like just oh Mm, yeah, this I enjoy this the taste and smell of this thing, right? So I'm gonna sip it right slowly. No, you you take yeah you 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 do shots, right? And <laughs> and it's not like yeah. when you go out to the bar and like hey you know you drink beer 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 and then you're like okay guys let's do a shot and you like you play some games you talk okay let's take another no vodka is like it's like shot 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 you know and you do like you don't do a half shot you like you know a normal tradition is do like the full 
what do you call it? Full shot, right? Bottoms up, right? It's a full shot compared to Korea, where like people drink soju, which is like 18% right? alcohol normally. And they do the same thing with, with soju and, and, and vodka, but vodka is in Russia, right? So like every time you drink, you take the full shot and it's like 40%. And it like, you know, it goes on and on. You don't like really mix, I guess, too much. Yeah. You know what you always see in movies is uh, you always see like the two people sitting at the table, shot glasses, like 10 shot glasses turned over and they're just going shot for shot. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen anything like that? I've never been in a bar and ever seen anybody doing this sort of like crowds surrounding the table, shots on each side, and they're just doing shot for shot for shot. Yeah, no one does it. <laughs> you know, no, like, people probably do that, you know. Like, you know, and some people, they they drink a lot, you know, like even like a cousin, like one night he drank how many bottles? Man, like several, couple, three or four bottles of vodka. Dang, a vodka? By himself. It was yeah. like by himself, three, like at least three bottles of vodka, right? Which is like what, half a liter each, oh, right? Dude, I would be dead. Was he walking? Was he standing? And like, <laughs> what was his behavior? Was he functioning? Can you imagine that hangover? Maybe he just like passed out for several days. <laughs> <laughs> right but vodka is kind of yeah part of the life Stiopa Likodev is Berlot's flatmate and director of the Variety Theater. He wakes up with a hangover in the number 50 apartment flat, and he comments about this particular flat as a mysterious one that people keep disappearing from. Suddenly, Stiopa is face-to-face -face with Woland, the black magic professor, and he's not alone. With him is his entourage. One was a black tomcat standing on his two legs named Behemoth. One other is a tall man named Korovie, who wears a pince a jockey's cap and checkered clothes. Another is a short, broad-shouldered man with a bowler hat on his head and a fang sticking out of his mouth and red hair. This one's name was Azazello. Voland and Stiopa had agreed on a contract for a performance at the Variety Theater last night. However, Stiopa has no memory of any of this. During their conversation, he is presented with drink and caviar, but by the end of the talk, Stiopa is clearly deemed unfit to remain in Moscow, knowing what he does, and so he is struck on the head by Volan's man, he blacks out and wakes up far away in a coastal town called Yalta. When the performance occurs, Ivan, or homeless, will be in the hospital, struggling to explain to the head Dr. Stravinsky and the others that Woland is real and dangerous. Woland's performance is nothing short of sensational and rather unbelievable. He makes money float from the ceiling, money removed from the bank and put into people's pockets. He removes the head of a man, put it back on backwards, and he dresses the audience in spectacular clothing, all for free. And when it's all over, Woland and his crew just disappear. But that will not be the end of things. No, not at all. This performance that Voland puts on is really hilarious. And then I also think it shows some satire towards everybody getting everything they want, but not really caring where it comes from. And as we'll see in the story, the clothes are not real. The money's not real, but, and we don't care how we get it, but we got it which is kind of what Stalin did. It's also very slick of Bulgakov, this author, because this must be a reference to the secret police and their mysterious work. You go against Stalin, you know, you go against the status quo, and you disappear like magic. And it makes sense. Voland is the devil. 
He's the professor of black magic, and people disappeared as if by magic. I mean, actually, it really was by magic, but... And so that means Roland is Stalin as the devil. You know, that's one thing I wonder about sometimes, is that, you know, is is it often that people can speak out against the government and against Putin? Or is there any of that scare still alive from the Stalin era? Because, I mean, this is where the book got created. This is the sources of its inspiration. So, you know, I wonder, like, obviously in America, you have the freedom of speech that's supposed to help you say whatever you want, even though you kind of don't get to, you know, what is it like in Russia? Do you think you can be vocal? Yeah, like vocal to a certain point, you know. You could have your your message right to be broadcasted on like SNS, you know, like you know some of you know major like news outlets. Like okay, boom, they will um, meet you up for like interview. But like you know, they will not start taking like I'm talking about you know the government, right? The people who are like on top, who are like actually in charge of the whole thing. They won't be like be seeing you as a threat to them unless you start to like gain those followers, right? And and like have this influence on on big number of people. Uh, to the point where, like, okay, they feel like, okay, this is uh, too much. Let's take some action, right? And you know, it's there. There is freedom of speech, but there's there's definitely like they there's definitely like a limit to that. And you'll you'll probably you'll probably see it. You know, as far as I know, you'll they'll send you like quote unquote a message. You know what I mean? When you have to kind of stop, they they kind of bother you. If they bother you, they will uh, let you know that you will understand. Like without any harm, without any, like, you know, violation, they will make you understand that, okay, stop doing what you're doing. I know, we know that what you're trying to do and stop doing it. If you don't, there'll be problem consequences. Like, if you want to compare it to, like, the West, United States, doesn't matter what the president is, right? Let's say Trump. These days, I see, like, a lot of uh, those major news. They, they will, like, mock the president, right? The shows that aim to, like, entertain, like, and, uh, like, those comedy shows, right? They will, like, openly mock, you know, the president. Or it doesn't it doesn't have to be president, but anybody in, in politics. But, like, I don't think they do that in, uh, in Russia. They would still mock. They would still, like, you know, there's this popular show called, like, Comedy Club. Comedy Club, right? And there would, like, be, like, this dude who is, like, who always, like, impersonates Putin, right? Who always in, be this Putin character, right? Because he's, like, he's got resemblance, physical resemblance. He would always, like be the Putin when they like do the skits and, and stuff but they would not like you know like when they mock him they are still being respectful to the president you know what I mean right make fun of his hair or whatever like, yeah you know. they, they would make fun of him but in a way that okay we, we still respect you you know you still are whatever god you know what I mean right I do let's continue with the story and see what happens next we are introduced to some new characters from this point on Nikanor Ivanovich Bosor. He is the house chairman of Berlot's apartment number 50. We will also meet Rimsky, the variety theater financial manager, and the house manager, Vernuka. To start, Nikanor Ivanovich Bosoy is helping to put official seals onto Berlot's manuscripts, and he's leaving the rest of his belongings in the rooms until Berlot's heirs can pick them up. So he runs to apartment 50, trying to flee pestering applicants for this now vacant apartment, and arrives at the flat. He unlocks the door and surprisingly finds and meets Kordoviv. Kordoviv informs the enraged Bosoy that they are allowed to be 
there by permission of Stjopa. Before his trip to Yalta, Stjopa had written Bosoy a letter about it. Miraculously, Bosoy finds the letter in his briefcase. It would be much needed income for Bosoy to let Woland stay there. Woland is extremely wealthy after all. Whether he actually wanted to or not, Bosoy finds himself signing the contract. He gets two free passes to the theater, along with a bundle of money, and Bosoy insists that, wait, it's illegal to accept this. But yet, it somehow creeps into his briefcase as well. Bosoy heads home, and Koroviv calls the police and reports him for receiving the foreign currency. Police raid his house and find the money and arrest Bosoy. When Bosoy tries to show them the contract, a letter, and his briefcase, he finds that there's nothing in there, not even the passes. During this Bosoy moment, we visit the Variety Theater with Rimsky and Veronuka. They begin receiving telegrams from Stjopa in Yalta, and this startles them because Yalta is so many kilometers away across Russia. How could he be in Yalta? It's impossible. They try to expose the trick, but get a call by somebody warning them not to. It's a mysterious call, and they do not know who it is. Varnuka runs out enraged and motivated to make this mysterious person pay, but finds himself in the men's bathroom confronted by Behemoth, the cat, and Azazello, that short pudgy man. They hit Varnuka and drag him all the way to Stjopa's apartment. They disappear, and Varnuka looks up to see a red-haired, naked woman. She leans to kiss him, but he faints. And while this happens to Vernuka, meanwhile, Rimsky is getting more and more nervous because he doesn't know where his friend is, and when he tries to call that place that Vernuka was headed, the phones are completely out. Um, around the world, you know, bribes happen all the time, you know, but we like certain countries have done a better job in reducing that kind of behavior than other countries. Malaysia, you get pulled over by a cop in the streets, you can still bribe them, get out of any trouble. Um, and that's kind of considered a normal thing to do. What about, um, like, what are Moscow police like? Like, you can compare them as American cops, you, like, as you should be, in my personal opinion. Like, I saw Korea and I saw how people, how the locals, they interact with, with police. Ah, in Korea? Okay. I was so shocked. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this Ajima was, she just, hit the guy <laughs> with like anything like on the head and he's a police officer oh my god and he was uh, apologizing like i'm so sorry like please calm down so overall you would say the police in russia are pretty reasonable no not reasonable maybe like if you're reasonable i would say if you're reasonable they'd be reasonable too but there will always be like crazy people crazy cops bad cops but yeah also in Wolin's crew they're pretty good at like they're tricky, right? They're kind of like magicians, but they're good at like pickpocketing and probably from magic or whatever, but they seem to take things off of people. No problem. When I was traveling in like places in Europe, I mean, they warn you about being aware of pickpocketers because there's some very sophisticated ones out there and you see YouTube videos of people being really good at this. How safe should foreigners navigate Moscow in, a, in the safest way? You know what has happened in Chicago to me quite often, which I don't understand. I've had on numerous occasions, people just coming up to me and saying, like, hey, man, like, uh, I'm really hungry. And like, do you have like some change so I can get like McDonald's cheeseburger or uh, and this it? has been like uh, often? No, <laughs> but you did. I don't know why I don't take. Well, one reason is because like maybe all they want to see is which pocket your wallet's in, you mm -hmm. know, if you um, have how much cash to carry. Yeah, and like they're just trying to check. Fortunately, we were most of the times I was in a public street during daytime. One time I was at walking down the street at nighttime. It was a pretty empty street in downtown Chicago. 
And this guy asked me, he's like, but he told me this story first. He's like, I asked this lady for change and she wouldn't give it to me because I'm black. And I was like, whoa. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, man, like, now I don't you have, have to give anything. him a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so like, like, but I was like, all right, you, I had change. <laughs> I had change in my pocket. So I gave him my change. In general, Russia, because it's Russia, like you, like what you said, right? Russia's pretty big. Like it's, it's bigger than the United States, right? But if you just talk about like specific places, right, where they like, you know, crowded places or like, you know, people where they expect a lot of tourists, right? And catch somebody, somebody off guard, right? Kind of like, okay, boom, those things happen all the time. The one that I have in my, like, didn't happen to me, but it happened to my dad uh, when he was younger. I remember he him telling us this story that like he was just walking on the street. Not sure, like probably like, but again, probably a place where people expected him to carry like, you know, cash or so he walks down the street and he feels like the slap on the back of his pocket, like his jean pocket, right? Or something. And then he turns around and he sees this guy behind him. But this guy, like he automatically, he looks at this guy's hands and they're empty. It, it like, and he acts like just normally, casually. So my dad's like, okay, whatever. Maybe it wasn't just a, maybe it was just an accident. So what happens is like later he he finds out that his passport is missing for some reason. He like he had his passport in in his back pocket. So what happened was I guess this this guy behind him he like he he picked his passport and he right away he just tossed it on the street on the on the ground like somewhere like I don't know somewhere in the, and he kept walking to look less suspicious. And then there's another dude who they work together probably. He will like he would be like you know he picked up the passport later. And I know in, in the Philippines, yeah, passports are the popular ones. Philippines, I met this guy. He was stuck there for like a month because somebody pickpocketed his passport and he had to get a new one. So he was just stuck living in Manila until he could get another one. In uh, London too, you know, they always have those and they have those guys with like the cups and you have to guess which cup the ball is under. And you can tell the system that's going on. They always have one one person that's there that just keeps playing, you know, and sometimes they win because you're watching, you know, it's a trick, you know, it's like a game and that they're going to like hustle you. But I, even the game while people are watching, I think that's a good time to get pickpocketed too. Did anybody else notice when reading this that they started referring to one of Wol Volan's men as Fagot, F-A-G-O-T? Now, I'm assuming this must be a translation thing, right? <laughs> it's just a name, but probably his name is Fagot because in Russian, Fagot means flute. Names in general in Russian, I, it's kind of hard to follow sometimes. And there's so many characters and then there's all these names. There's like the full name and then sometimes they call them a nickname. And then there's like the first two names or the middle name. And you get, they're like, wait a minute, who is this guy? For me, it's kind of hard to follow. It's really confusing even like reading it in Russian. I just for fun, I tried to like listen the audiobook, this book, The Master Margarita in English. And I was listening and after a couple of chapters, I just like gave up. We have like our name consists, full name consists of three names, like the family name, like like your name, the first name and uh, like kind of father's name. We take, we kind of carry on. And because of that, it's kind of really sounds long. And also Russian people, they have like really long and really hard to pronounce Family names. What's popular in Russia? Is it, you know, does Vladimir and Putin become popular now? Yeah, Vladimir, it was popular. It was one of the popular names. Alexander, I guess, the, the most popular one. Yeah, like even like the, the author's name, like Mikhail is like a popular one. Yeah, Victor, Victor, Vladimir, right? Very good. Well, let's see what's happening to homeless back at the mental hospital. We get to meet one of the main characters of this book from the title of this book, 
Master. Ivan sees Master sitting outside of his window at the hospital. He lets him in and they talk and surprisingly the Master understands and he believes his story and the Master tells him that he knows the very same person. He tells Ivan that both of them are in the clinic for the same reason but he had written a novel about Pontius Pilate. Why is his name Master? The Master says that he has renounced everything, and that includes his name, so now he is just Master. Master informs Ivan that he had been a historian by training, until he began to do translations. He knows five languages. Master one day then found a lottery ticket, and he won! He left his terrible apartment and got a new one. He also mentions, after that, falling in love with a woman. Quote, Love caught us suddenly, leaped at us, like a murderer appearing from out of nowhere in an alley, and struck us both down at once." Unquote. She gets revealed to be the other name of our title, Margarita. Both of them, Margarita and Master, were married to other people, but Margarita became his secret wife. When Master wrote his novel, he received terrible criticism that drove him one night to throw the manuscript into the fire. Margarita had promised to help him get better, but the Master ends his story and says he's incurable, and he hopes that she forgot about him already. And then, with that, he leaves Ivan's room out the window and returns back to his own room. I know they're in a mental hospital. That is such a weird way to meet one of the other fellow patients. <laughs> Better yet is how this guy's name is Master. I find that very comedically arrogant that when you renounce everything, the one thing you keep is for everybody to call you Master. Maybe I should renounce everything and have everybody call me number one. Hey, number one. Or the best. Hey, that's my friend, the best. Why is he called the best? Uh, well, I don't know. He's just the best. One thing he does appear to be very good at is languages. He says he knows five of them. How many languages do you know? I know only, I know English, I know some Korean and some Spanish, and that's about it. But I'm only fluent, really, in English. How about you? Two and a half. Russian, English, and Korean. A small part of Uzbeki. Mostly swear words. Well, like, yeah, people, it's so funny, like, how people, like, automatically assume that away from Uzbekistan that our mother language is Uzbeki, and they kind of get, like, no, I speak Russian. And they kind of, after that, they assume that Uzbeki is our second language. It's, like, it's really hard to explain that, like, because of Soviet Union, all the countries that, like, they were in the Union, they, the first language was Russian. The secondary language was the language of the country, for example. Russian was in Uzbekistan the first and second was Uzbeki language. And we started learning Russian from the first grade and Uzbeki, I guess, from the second or third or something as I remember. You know what else is I noticed this master guy is basically using the mental hospital as a temporary home. That's quite fitting for both of them to be considered homeless because they both wrote things that were not accepted by their peers or by the critics and even homeless being nicknamed homeless is now actually homeless because he doesn't agree with what everyone's telling him. He's telling him that something else exists and everyone says, no, it doesn't. And if you don't agree with us, we're going to put you out of your home and into this mental hospital. So both of them are having this sort of homeless problem. And Bulgakov, our author, also had this too, where being cast out of the literary circle, which was his home, he was also essentially homeless and he wasn't making any money. So he was also losing his home in that way, I guess, too. So this homeless thing, I think, is a bigger theme, deeper than just a nickname for the character. And there actually is a homeless problem 
in the States, the West Coast has the biggest homeless problem. Like a quarter of the homeless people are living there. And it's just kind of crazy. I wonder the same about Moscow. Well, it's a problem. There's a, in, in Moscow specifically, there's a problem of homeless dogs because people kind of, like Russian people, they love animals. Like, but at the same time, in the big cities with the love of dogs, there's also more chance of people getting rid of them. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of like, like homeless dogs in there, but they're kind of scary. When I was in Moscow, I kind of like faced them. They like all the dogs, they're in packs. The homeless dogs, they're like wolves. I guess they have instincts still. So they, they, like, they make, they produce a pack. And they kind of like they move around the city by pack. So like, if you see one like homeless dog, there will be like at least ten nearby. So it re- they're really scary. And just like I was told right away from my uncle, I guess if you like if you see a pack of dogs, just like try to be as cool as possible and just slowly just go away. Just like if you want to go forward, just now go back and try to not interact with them. I also found it funny when he questioned Homeless if he's a violent man. I wouldn't say Homeless is a violent man, but he certainly had his outbursts at the beginning of this book when he was running around chasing the devil. I think he even punched a guy in the face. I know for a fact that Russian people, they tend to get into fight because of drinking. They would interpret like small, the smallest things, offenses. They would like misinterpret certain gestures or words as something like overreact. They would like exaggerate and overreact to them. And like they would start up a like huge fight. There's uh, also like when fight starts, the normally like your friends are supposed to like, you know, break up the fight. And But like, you know, a lot of times it, it's the opposite, right? If you have a bunch of friends with you and they also like you know drunk enough they would like you know they would like join you in the fight you know there's so like it started with two guys fighting <laughs> and then like, it ends up like two groups of friends they just you know get into a like, huge fight right yeah yeah it could get pretty violent like, but then the funny thing is right once like everything settles down they will like you know they sober up and they're like oh you know oh it was for nothing we're friends again boom they shake hands and they you know split you know there's a lot of that kind of stuff I was only in one bar fight. Yeah, uh, it was, I mean, I kind of, I guess, was two. There was two fights. The the second, one of them, though, I didn't really do much of the fighting. I tried to kind of break it up. My brother was the guy who hit him. And actually, my brother was with me on the second fight, too. So maybe there's a bad pattern there. We were in a bar, and I was talking to one guy at the bar waiting for my beer, ordered a Sam Adams. And this guy came up to me, and he's like, said I was hitting on his cousin. And I never did. He was with his own group of friends. There was a girl there. But I never talked to him. I think it was my brother. I think my brother talked to him. <laughs> <Sit you up. laughs> yeah. Anybody doesn't know I'm a twin, so we look alike. So I think it was my brother that might have talked to her. It makes it would have made sense. But I was like, I had no idea. So the guy I'm talking to is trying to tell that guy. I think they were friends. He's like, no, man, like you got it wrong. But this guy keeps like, he's like, his eyes are bulging out of his head, you know, and looking at me and in my face. Eventually, then he punched me in the side of the face. I tried to punch him right away after that. I remember vaguely my arms swinging, but I don't think I connected with anything. <laughs> I assume it's because I was drunk. At least I didn't feel it. I got grabbed immediately by a bouncer or something. But before that happened, before I got grabbed, I know somebody came from my left and just like spear tackled the guy. And that was my brother.
Let's continue as we get near the end of book one and return to Rimsky, who's sitting in the office. Remember, Veronika has gone and never shown up, and Rimsky is sitting there trying to contemplate and understand all the events that have been happening, like the telegrams and the magical performance and all the fake banknote money that's been given around Moscow now. He sits in his office, staring at these banknotes, and he hears a commotion outside. He looks out the window and he sees that women and men from the show are running around naked or very near naked in their underwear and the police are frantically trying to restore the order. But Rimsky's office suddenly begins to feel dark and a rancid dampness is drifting into the office from under the door. The clock strikes midnight. There is scraping on the keyhole as if somebody is cautiously trying to open it. It opens and it's Vernuka. Rimsky is pleased, but feels something is off. Still, he's anxious to learn the tale of Stiopa and his telegrams from Yalta. Veronuka, sucking at his lip as if he had a sore tooth, begins to tell him that the letters weren't from Yalta. It was tricks. As Rimsky listens, he realizes more and more that Veronuka is lying. He realizes that he never discovered anything about the tale of the telegrams. And a rank, malarial damp was drifting across the floor again. Rimsky noticed, quote, a huge dark bruise on his right cheek. His pale, chalky, sickly paler, and his neck was for some reason wrapped in this sultry night with an old striped muffler. All this, along with the most repulsive manner of sucking and smacking of his lips. There was a sharp change in his voice too. It had become rough and hollow, and the thievish, cowardly expression in his eyes had made Vernuka downright unrecognizable." Unquote. Then, Rimsky notices that the lamp is bright, and beyond the chair is the chair's shadow. But Vernuka casts no shadow. Then, Vernuka realizes that he's been made, and says with a vicious grin, You guessed it! Damn you! You've always been sharp! Vernuka leaps back and locks the door, and then Rimsky notices that outside the window is a naked woman. We've learned her name is Hella. She's clawing to get in. Rimsky is doomed. And suddenly then, we hear a cock crow several times announcing the arrival of dawn. Hella and Vernuka depart out the window. Rimsky rushes out of the theater, pays heavily for a taxi to take him to the Leningrad Express train. He boards the train frantically and departs. Okay, no lie, this was actually really well written. Props to the translator on this one. I got pretty creeped out at this scene. And being that it was originally in Russian, so yeah, this was pretty good. The only thing I can think is that Veronuka, he must be, uh, well, I'll give you the chance to guess this one. Vampire, werewolf, or ghost, or zombie. If you're thinking vampire, then you're thinking like me. He didn't cast a shadow, and he's sucking his tooth a whole lot, although I don't know why Hella is outside the window naked. <laughs> And I don't know if there's a fascination with nakedness in this book because we also have people running around the streets in Moscow naked. And I have a feeling that we're not going to be, we're not going to be reading for the last time that there's somebody naked in this book. So um, we might have to revisit that a little bit. It might be like a conservative side to that, right? Where kind of like uh, the girls would at that time, they would, there might be like a shame, right? You know, they might feel shame if they expose like, you know, like too much of their body. And they're like that, even like the clothes that they would wear, like it would not like, there was no like obviously short skirts and, and revealing dresses, right? So maybe, but like, I don't know. I've never noticed this before. But, well, I, I did notice that 
like there were like naked ladies kind of mentioned a lot at least five five times i guess there, like there was like naked lady right away as soon as the Ivan got crazy right when he like kind of tried to chase oh, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was naked lady one there was naked lady like uh the the margarita herself she was like naked a lot of times Naked ladies in the ball, right? But Margarita and the ball, that comes later, I guess. Like any like a lot of naked naked stuff. But like sometimes I thought like it was unnecessary. Why why like what's like doesn't serve any purpose for them for the story to be naked? Like art, I think it's kinda of art thing. But we watch a movie and boom, there's a like sex scene or naked scene. And if you think about oh, I'm not complaining, but like if you think about it. It was totally unnecessary. You can just like, you know, remove the scene and nothing will be changed. Now that I think about the scenes that you guys are referring to, like, let's say, let's break it down, right? If you guys want to go into it. Uh, let's say, Igor, you mentioned this uh, scene where Ivan, right? When he was, uh, he's like, okay, the author, the editor's guy, right? The main editor that got, had got cut off by the tramp. And he was like, okay, he was chasing those guys, like the cat. And he went to, like, at some point, he ended up in this, like, random, like, stranger's house. And he, like, opened the bath. And there was a girl, you know, naked girl, obviously taking a bath. But that kind of, like, made sense because that kind of adds to, like, this insanity. Because, like, he's so crazy that he doesn't care about, like, personal, like, privacy and the boundaries. He would just show up at stranger's house, right? Open the bathroom without even knocking. And then, like, with the, uh, the naked girl or you know, half-naked girls in the street. There's a reason for that because it was kind of exposes the greed because like, here's like, you know, a bunch of free stuff like clothes, right? Just pick up any expensive like items that you like, put them on and then they disappear because it was like all the magic trick. So that kind of shows the greed of the, you know, the people. What was the final one? Well, actually, I think the final one, we should wait until we get to that part in book two with Margarita. So let's put that one on hold and revisit it in the next section. Um, I think it, this is a good time to continue and let's finish it up and head to the last part of this book, book one of Master and Margarita. We return to Jerusalem. Legionnaires are conducting the procession of prisoners through the large crowds of spectators. The heat is terrible. The weary soldiers hope the prisoners perish quickly. Only the centurion rat killer appeared unaffected by the heat. One man sits on the mountain opposite the crucifixion site, Matthew Levy, and he holds a knife. He plans to plunge the knife into Yeshua's back to save him from his misery, but he can't get through the soldiers. And he watches as four hours pass and Yeshua still hasn't died. And he curses himself and he curses God. His plan was to stab Yeshua and then to kill himself to escape the death on the post. Although initially he didn't have a knife so he had stolen one from the store. Okay, this sounds pretty dumb if you ask me. Suicide was considered a sin as far as I was aware. So, you know, especially especially in this moment where it seems like a pretty bad move to steal a knife, which is against, you know, the law of God. It's a sin. And then to use that knife to kill Yeshua, who is the actual son of God, and then to commit suicide, which would be another sin. So that's like two or three sins right back to back of each other. And you're doing it right in front of the guy who's going to let you into heaven. So I think it's a pretty kind of silly move by this guy. 
He's like a kid who tries to start playing the game before listening to all the instructions or rules. No wonder Yeshua pretty much blamed him. He pretty much blamed this guy on his arrest in the beginning of this book one. Am I missing something or did this guy miss Jesus class 101? He didn't kind of blame him, no. He just like kind of pardoned him, excused him. He didn't have much education, something like that. He is kind of this guy. Uh, he was already a like, kind of sinner, right? Before he met uh, Jesus, right? But all three, I just thought it was like, dude, you're going to do all three of those things. Like those are all like 10 commandment things that you're about to do right in front of the guy who basically made this. So, like, He's kind of like, he kind of really impulsive guy. This, but in, but in his mind, he thinks he's doing good. This guy's a headache. Like, <laughs> this might be similar to the little question of if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you do it? This might be similar in that way, where if you could go back in time and save Jesus, would you do it? That's a difficult answer, I think, too. Or would you be like Matthew and be willing to stab Jesus to put him out of his misery? Do you think that's what Matthew should be doing? Let's head back to Jerusalem and finish this chapter up. Two men are dying with Yeshua. One's name is Dismas, and he's on the second post, and he's just plain suffering. Gestus is the other man, who begins singing a song about grapes, driven mad during that third hour. After the soldiers spear the three condemned, a storm completely overtakes Jerusalem, and the rain literally washes everyone off the hill. Matthew is the only one left. He uses his knife to cut Yeshua down and carries the body away. Okay, pause. Is anybody else thinking what I'm thinking when they read about the guy singing the song about grapes? I'll give you a hint. Always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> Back in Moscow, we are with the Variety Theater bookkeeper Vasily Stepanovich Lastochkin. There's a double line queue outside the theater. Everyone left in the offices are freaking out, unsure what to do since all the management have disappeared by now. Investigators come to the Variety offices to ask about Volan's performances, uncovering clues of this scandalous mystery, and they cancel all future shows. Vasily, the bookkeeper, leaves the theater to run two errands and tries for a taxi cab. The taxis are stubborn to give him a ride since they've been receiving money all day <laughs> and they've been from the show, which we know this money is fake. All the money that they've gotten looks like labels from a bottle, like the Narzon bottles. Vasily arrives at the office of the Commission on Spectacles and Light Entertainment. The chairman of that commission is in a terrible state. He's turned invisible, except for his clothes, and doesn't seem to even know it. His secretary does though, and she's hysterical about it. Apparently, the chairman's name is Petrovich, and it was the Black Tom that had shown up in his office earlier to put him in this state. The reason he was in this state was because Petrovich shouted, What the hell is this? Get him out of here! The devil take me! And bang, it was done, leaving behind an empty suit. This is funny because the Black Tom Behemoth actually took it seriously, actually let the devil take him. <laughs> so choose your words carefully. I think there's one lesson right there. 
Yeah, because like there's a there's different words for like uh, Satan, right? Or 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 the devil in in Russian, the word they use the uh, mostly when they're like you know sort of curse or you know no no one really associates this with uh, you know the actual Satan demon. They say like demon. The actual translation will be like demon take me, not the devil. Take I feel a little bit bad for the guy when he tries to take a taxi and he can't pay with money because they don't believe him. Taxis are kind of funny. They're a little different everywhere you go. These days, you know, we have taxis and we have like, you know, there's like sort of like official taxi. They look like taxis, right? From the outside. They like belong to sort of a company, I guess, right? But there's also a lot of like freelance taxi drivers. You know what I mean? Like you could be a taxi driver. You know what I mean? You could just like uh, like person like on the street could just flag you down and it doesn't have to look like a taxi, right? It would be just a normal car. You can just stop your car, pick someone up, you negotiate the price, right? And you just drive them. That's that's thing. That thing is common. Somebody is trying to like, you know, flag you down. You just stop and you're like, oh, it's it's on the way. Okay, hop in and then you'll charge them a certain amount. And then, yeah, that's it. Well, like, it's kind of dangerous because, like, you know, everyone can do it. Like, it's not, not licensed. But at the same time, it's convenient. You don't have to wait for the taxi. You can negotiate. Yeah, it's kind of like reverse hitchhiking or basically an unofficial form of Uber. Sounds good. So let's continue with the story and see what happens next. We're right at the end here at book one. Let's see what happens next. Lastly, <music> next heads to the branch office of the commission. When he arrives, the entire building is in a compulsory massive sing-along. More of Wolin's work. And it's hilarious as it is tragic. The song they're singing is Glorious Sea, a Russian folk song. Then everyone from the building loads into the trucks outside and heads towards the clinic together because, well, they must be crazy. None of them can stop singing, and so they sing merrily on their way. By the end of the chapter, Vasily also gets arrested because he arrives at the bank and uses fake money, another victim. Berlot's uncle, Maximilian Andreevich Poblovsky, arrives in Moscow from Kiev. He hates Kiev, and like everyone else apparently, wants to live in Moscow. He wants his nephew's apartment. He received a telegram. It read, Have just been run over by a streetcar at, at Patriarch's Pond. Funeral Friday, 3 afternoon, come Berlot's. And this opportunity would be sinful to ignore. Men of good sense know that such moments do not repeat themselves. Yet, Berlotz is dead. How did he send the telegram? When Maximilian arrives at the house, he begins by requesting a pickup of Berlotz's belongings. When he enters the apartment 15 soon after, he meets Koroviv. Koroviv begins bawling about Berlotz's death. Then he meets Behemoth, the black tomcat, remember? Maximilian can't believe his eyes. Behemoth requests a look at his passport. When he looks at Maximilian's passport, he is disgusted with it and says, Your presence at the funeral is cancelled. Go back to Kiev and never return for apartments in Moscow. Maximilian is shoved out down the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, another man is making his way up to apartment 50. So Maximilian waits for him to get tossed out just like he did. But he doesn't. The man is in there for a long time. When he does emerge, he's hatless, wild-eyed, his head is scratched, and his pants are wet. That bald man is the bartender and manager of the buffet at the Variety Theater. He had come to complain about the false money that was received as a result of the show's tricks. Andre is treated very badly by Roland and learns something terrible as well. Just like Berlotz, he's told when he'll die. He'll die in nine months. 
What is it with Roland's obsession of telling people when they're going to die? If somebody could tell you when you were going to die, would you want to know? I wonder, is Voland simply stating death as something that's already bound to happen? Or does he create it right when he says it? What if instead of telling you when you were going to die, someone told you how you were going to die? Would that change your choice to know? I like this quote that I see during the conversation of the bartender and Voland. Quote, I like to sit low, said Voland. A fall from a low seat is less dangerous. Unquote. I think this could be a dig at the feeling Bulgakov felt by being suppressed by his critics every time he tried to rise up in the literary world. And did you notice that this bartender is the first person that said, good God, instead of like the devil take me or something? I thought that was kind of interesting too. Naturally, he heads to the specialist doctor of liver disease to find out if Volin was telling the truth. This doctor, Professor Kuzman, thinks that this bartender is a madman and asks, Hey, do you drink vodka? But the bartender replies, Never touch it. The doctor instructs the bartender to bring a urine sample for analysis. So the bartender leaves. He leaves gold in payment on the counter. But then, it turns to wine labels once he leaves. A cat appears. A lady runs across the yard wearing underwear. A sparrow suddenly appears in his room, hopping on the desk. It all happens in rapid succession and the professor is feeling ridiculous. He gets to the telephone and calls for leeches to be delivered to his home, screams when he turns around to see a nurse with a fang and a dead eye holding the said leeches in a bag. Guzman, by the end of this chapter, is at home, leeches hanging from his temples, ears and neck, trying to convince himself that it was all a bad hallucination or something. Book one ends with this last final note. Quote, we do not know what other fantastical events took place in Moscow that night, and of course we shall not try to search them out, especially since the time has come for us to go on to the second part of this truthful narrative. Follow me, readers." Unquote. Alright, well that does it. That's book one of Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. That was excellent. Thanks Igor, thanks Roman. I think this is a great time to take a break because I need to go check on Paige and make sure she's not lost somewhere or getting into trouble. Let's meet back over by the fiction section and let's get into book two over there. All right, I'll be right back. Thanks for listening today. Next episode, we'll cover with book two of the novel. So join us on our travels by subscribing to iTunes or Google Podcasts or visiting the website where you can find more episodes, information, and even recommend the next guest or international book. You're reading the world with paperbacker podcast.